0: The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 verses 16 through chapter 11 verse 10 struggles with a serious issue. Why did Israel, God's special children, refuse to respond when He stretched out His arms toward them in the person of His Son? The majority of Jews today still reject Jesus for giving grace. As we look at this passage with our study leader, Dave Woodson, ask yourself, how am I responding to God's inviting arms? I can tell the Martins, Kevin and Paula, are really excited about little Catherine being born. And all of you know, Mary and I tell you about our grandkids. Mary comes home from having little Scarlett, and she's already telling me, here the little Scarlett, it's only a couple days old. And she's telling me, hey, she responds to me, she can see me. When I smile at her, she smiles back. And how many of you have ever heard grandparents and moms and dads talking like that? I have two grandsons, little Noah. That's Noah on my shoulders. And it's like having uh, Joel all over again. And it's kind of like having a little touch of my second son. And the cool thing about Noah, he's just a little bit over two, and he's at that cool age that when Grandpa goes like this, how does he respond? Everybody show me. Grandpa goes like this, how does he do? That's right. You've all got it. That's what we want to talk about today. In the passage today in Romans, the Apostle Paul has been talking to us about God going like this. The whole book of Romans is God going like this to not just his Jewish people, but he's now opening the doors of grace, which was his plan all along, that in Abraham all the nations would be blessed. The book of Romans is about the triune God ...reaching out to Jews and to Gentiles alike. The Apostle Paul is wrestling with the question... ...why is it that when God reached out through his son... ...his own physical brothers and sisters didn't respond? As you turn to Romans chapter 10... ...he wrestles first of all with the idea that... ...did you hear the message? As we talked last time we were together... ...we had how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news... We had a passage that talked about that the good news is centered in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, when you hear the message, you hear God's call, the response needs to be, I trust in Jesus. So in your life this morning, think back when you heard the gospel, maybe you're a little kid, maybe you were a teenager, maybe you were an older adult, but think back to the time that you remembered hearing, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus is God's promise one from the old testament jesus did all those miracles and then you have that riveting story of jesus offering himself on calvary in our culture every year at easter time the whole world actually stops in many ways across the world and we remind with the passion of jesus and then remember the first time you heard that he rose again from the dead the bible in the book of romans is claiming that that's the heartbeat that's the center of god's story and it's saying how beautiful it is when people bring that story to others. And we closed our time the last time we were together, really challenging one another to be like that Scottish minister that even as the Titanic was going down, and as he knew he was going to lose his physical life, but he was going to go up to be with his Savior, we closed last time by stressing the beauty... And the power of a man that even when he's getting ready to lose his physical life can be challenging people, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and you're not going to be lost forever. That's a beautiful thing. And one of the things I want you to know is it's, there's a very negative spirit among unbelieving people when you try to challenge them to believe in Jesus. Our culture, the dominant atmosphere is you believe what you want to believe, and I believe what I want to believe, and we all live happily ever after. How many of you have ever had that kind of a thought? You know, you have your nice little belief, and I have mine. How many of you ever heard that? That's a very common thing. And so you're going to have to come to grips with the fact, just like I have, that it really is a beautiful thing to share the good news. I remind myself of a medical metaphor that if I suddenly found the cure to cancer. Let's suppose I suddenly found the cure for all prostate cancer and all breast cancer. And I could definitely, I could cure every woman that has breast cancer around the world, and I could cure every man that has prostate cancer, and it'll be eradicated from the human race. But a few people, I went to Africa, for example, and they started telling me, we're really embarrassed about talking about those areas, and so we don't want you to tell anybody about that. So I get a lot of resistance to that. Would it be right for me to say, well, okay, that's fine. I appreciate the fact that you have a cultural hesitancy to do this, so I'm not going to tell you. What would you think of me as a medical doctor if I said, okay, I'm not going to tell you about it? That's not too good, is it? And it cuts across a very strong part of me. Like, I don't like it when I have to tell somebody. There's a part of me that says, I would like to believe that your way to heaven. As an Islamic person, you're five pillars of Islam, or if you're a Jew, if you obey the Sinaitic law and you keep the covenants and you live according to Orthodox Judaism, that's a marvelous way. You're a people of the book, and I'm a people of the book. We'll all live happily ever after. What I want you to see, the Apostle Paul is saying, no. The book focuses its whole laser light on Jesus Christ that came 2,000 years ago. It's incredible good news. God has come, and what the Apostle Paul is wrestling with is why did his Jewish people not respond? It And he goes on and develops this. If you look at Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he raises this issue. Did you hear the message? In this passage, he's specifically speaking about his own Jewish people. That'll be the immediate context. But I ask myself, Did I hear the message? And I want you to ask yourself, did you hear the message today? He starts out in verse 16, but not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. The Apostle Paul is going to say that he realized that the gospel went out, the message was proclaimed, and the Apostle Paul is actually showing us in Romans chapter 10 that the good news was actually proclaimed in the Old Testament. It's something I want you to understand. It's a misnomer to think that suddenly God changed gears, and now we're going to be saved by grace, not going to be saved by the law. Now it's going to be a free gift, and it wasn't a free gift in the Old Testament. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches from day one, there was fallen men, a fallen man and a fallen woman in the garden, and a promise. And the only way their nakedness could be covered is by a sacrifice and believing the promise that a great deliverer that was going to come. That's in the first three chapters of the Bible. And that's what Paul believed with all of his heart. He said that the storyline of God's promise all through the Old Testament is human beings will sin, sin, sin. That they're going to be lost and they can never earn their salvation. But if they can trust God's promise, if they turn away from their sin, they trust God's promise, then they receive the mercy of God. And the Apostle Paul has been showing us that he was proclaiming the message. He himself went from one city to the next in the Mediterranean world. So much so that we're going to find out that he can actually say the whole Mediterranean world, almost all the synagogues has been reached, which was a little stretch of hyperbole, but not too much. Because in this book, he's getting ready to go to Spain. That's kind of like the last part of the inhabited world of the first century that hasn't heard the good news. So he begins with, "Did you hear the message?" So he starts out, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our message?" Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That idea that the message is heard through the word of Christ is emphasizing what I've just spent a lot of time on, that the heartbeat of the Old Testament revelation is the word about the Messiah. The heartbeat as you're reading the Old Testament is what I just told you. It's the promise of that great deliverer. Orthodox Judaism today, actually, very interestingly, if you went to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue on Friday night, you would be taught, if you ask them about the Messiah, that it's not important for the Messiah to come personally. There is going to be a great David figure. There's going to be a great political leader. But we're not really that excited about him We're excited about the time of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? We're excited about what the age of the Messiah is going to bring. And they de-emphasize the person of the Messiah. That's an exact contradiction. And the Apostle Paul would wrestle with people. No. It's not just about a great day. It's about a great person. It's about a great Savior. It's about a great Messiah The whole Old Testament is about the word of the Messiah, and Paul believes with all of his heart as a Jew that the Messiah is Jesus. So he's saying, consequently, the faith comes from hearing the message, and the heart of the message is about the word about the Messiah. And you could even translate this, the Messiah is speaking through the word of the apostles in the first century. He says, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. First of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about, for Isaiah says, the Lord has believed our message. It's a little bit hard to string together the Apostle Paul's Old Testament passages, so stay with me this morning. That is a quote, Lord, who has believed our message? You might not recognize that, but that is at the very beginning of the most powerful messianic passage pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus It's the Isaiah 53. You all know, how many of you have ever learned, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord God in heaven has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. How many of you have ever learned that verse, okay? That's the most powerful statement of the Messiah being a sacrifice for our sins. That passage begins with Isaiah 53, 1, with the writer of that passage saying who has believed our report what paul is claiming is that the old testament predicted 800 years before jesus came that when they talked to his own people about the messiah sacrificing himself and being the sacrifice for sins he says who has believed our report and it starts out by saying he started out as a humble plant coming up like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or communist. He was not a beautiful, handsome Hollywood movie star that we would recognize him. And all the idea that's told to us in the gospel record that Jesus grew up in a poor family, he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, he grew up in Galilee, and the Judean leaders down in Jerusalem, the big city hierarchy of religion, didn't buy what he had to say. All that the Apostle Paul is claiming was predicted by Isaiah 800 years because Isaiah started out saying, who has believed our report? But one of the points, when I say, haven't you believed the report? It means, what has happened to you about the report? If I say, who has believed our report? Then it means the report has gotten out. And that's Paul's point. He's asking, the message is going out. People are... Hearing the message, but what are they doing with it in their heart? That's what he's wrestling with. Look what he said, what I asked. Did they hear? Of course they did. This is a really interesting thing. A lot of people worry about, are they heathen lost? How many of you have ever had an unbeliever ask you, are they heathen lost? What I mean by that? People that have never heard the gospel, are they lost? And they'll say, God is so mean, because how in the world could he ever send him to hell? So I'm not going to believe in Jesus. The question you want to ask people is, okay, You might not ever meet the heathen. Like Mary's brother Frank just got back from India and talked to a lot of people that have never heard about Jesus. But most of your friends this week that you interact with, they're not going to see many heathen. And what the big question is, have you heard the gospel? You want to ask your unbelieving friends, have you heard the gospel? You're worried about someone that's never heard it? Let's talk about how you respond because you're someone that's heard it. And that's where the Apostle Paul changes gears. He does this a lot with me. See, I want to deflect it. And I want to say, hey, wait a minute. What about those that have never heard? And he says, no, wait a minute. Like, the big question, why is it that the first century Jews didn't believe in Jesus? They didn't believe in Jesus because God blew it. They never heard about Jesus dying on the cross. They never heard about Jesus rising in from the dead. The reason the Jews didn't believe in Jesus is because nobody ever found out that Jesus died and rose again. Now, a lot of you might think that's true, and the way our society is going, we're we're rapidly getting people that might grow up in the United States of America and not hear it, but you have to be an idiot in our culture not to know that Jesus died on the cross. You have to be a total idiot, because you can just flip through the TV station, and it might get scrambled up a little bit, but you'll hear somebody shouting at you, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I'm going through the stations, you know, I listen to Wolf a little bit, say, no, that's not too good for Sunday morning, so I flip it over, and I have, I have Robert Jeffress, the new pastor at First Baptist Church, saying, let's all get down on our knees, and let's ask the Lord to bless our service today, and I know if I kept listening on the radio, I could be a total rank atheist, drinking my coffee, having my Dallas Morning News, I can flip on the radio, and Robert Jeffress is going to shop the gospel at me. How many of you would say that it's pretty hard not to hear? How many of you have heard newscasts about what will the evangelical believers, will they support Mitt Romney as a, because he's a Mormon? How many of you have heard any discussion about that? Now that should tell you something. The message has gone out. When I was a little kid in New Jersey, I used to think, like, because I go to school and nobody would know what an evangelist was. So I used to think, like, man, I can't believe it. My dad goes all over the place. Nobody knows what my dad says. You know, that's not really true. There was a Billy Graham crusade in New York City when I was seven years of age. And thousands of people came forth. The New York Times gave it front page headlines. As a little seven-year-old, I might feel that my elementary school. Nobody's heard about Jesus. That's a bunch of baloney. The message was going on like crazy. They fought about the message. The believers even fought about whether they would support Billy Graham or not. So what I want you to understand, Paul makes the same claim in the first century. He said, did you hear the message? And what Paul's claiming is the message has gone out. And he's saying, you've heard the message. Now the issue is, what have you done with it? He says, the voice has gone out. He quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4. The Apostle Paul, like, he's talking to a Jewish audience predominantly. And so what he does is he uses their Jewish scriptures. He's saying, when King David in Psalm 19, 4 said this... Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the earth, the end of the world. What it's saying, that's a quote from Psalm 19, and it says this. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament show us his handiwork. Day unto day, every single day, their voice goes out into all the earth. Paul is quoting Psalm 19, which is saying, Every human being on planet earth has God speaking to them, according to the old testament every day i want you to understand that you need to burn that in your mind because everybody had the idea like god doesn't talk nobody knows what he's saying how can we ever find this this weird god whoever this supreme being might be i want you to understand that that's dead wrong this is what the bible says mary got up this morning mom was staying with us and mom wanted to know how cold it was you know she and mary so they're having this debate back and forth is it colder in the house or is it colder outside so Mary says, Well, I'll solve the argument. I'll check it out. And Mary's even boasted. She's saying, I can tell what the temperature is, even without a thermometer. So she goes outside and says it's 61 degrees outside. So you don't have to get a thermometer. Just ask Mary. But the very first thing she said to go outside is, Wow, look at the sun. You know what God said? She said, Honey, my daughter, I love you this morning. You live in a world where there's a beautiful, gorgeous sun. It radiates light. The light changes with every second as it rises in the east and makes its journey like a chariot. The Old Testament presents the sun like a chariot, God's chariot. It's not saying that God rides the sun. It's just saying that it's his handiwork. It's like a great chariot that rides from the east to the west. What Psalm 19 is saying is that Mary should hear her father saying, I'm a personal God. I took care of you while you were sleeping, and now you're going to have a gorgeous day because I'm a gracious, awesome father. And the temperature's going to be just right. I'm not going to freeze you to death, you know, make it, you know, minus 156 degrees Fahrenheit, and I'm not going to cook you and make it 212, you know, Fahrenheit. It's going to be relatively in between, even in Texas, because I love you. And a scientist might say, oh, that is just you know, so many degrees of electromagnetic radiation, it's this frequency, and there's a hydrogen reaction that are taking place, several explosions, and they might do all that and say, who cares? But that's not really the voice that's inside them. There's a voice that's saying, this doesn't happen by accident. And if a scientist thought hard, he'd realize one of my physics professors worked hour after hour after hour to make the atomic bomb. And he didn't sit in Chicago with Fermi saying, let's just randomly, you know, let's just kind of throw chemicals around and you know, let's just heat some things up and let's just have a blast underneath Soldier's Field and let's see what would happen. It's all by random things. Hugh Payne, my physics professor, knitted and thought and worked very hard to use his metallurgy to control the atomic reactions that were in the early stages of learning how to handle that. And it took some of the most brilliant minds. He's one of the most brilliant guys I've ever studied with. What an awesome privilege to study with, Hugh Payne. And Hugh would stand up before us and say, my heavenly daddy created it all. I love physics because all the math comes from God. And all this power that just a little, I've seen just a little bit of it. When I saw that first atomic bomb explode, the awe, of that and that's what psalm 19 is saying everybody on planet earth has the creator god talking that what did we learn in romans chapter 1 i'm not making this up romans 1 says they knew god and they turned away from him remember how it describes how they knew god and they didn't honor him as god they didn't give him thanks they could easily look at creation and know that he was a personal God and that he was a powerful God. And instead, we live in a human race that started worshiping little idols. They worship animals. And Paul's saying, You're without excuse. Psalm 19 goes on and has special revelation, it doesn't just stop with general revelation in creation. Psalm 19 goes on and talks about special revelation. And the Jews that the Apostle Paul is talking to in the first century didn't just have general revelation, they had special revelation. And the Apostle Paul is saying that God not only talked to you every single day in nature, but you received the message. God's voice was going out to all the Jewish people through special revelation. Then he gives a quote from Moses, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. Again, I ask. Did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And again, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by a people who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, God held out his hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. The Apostle Paul starts out in the first verses 16 and 18. He says, did you get the message? Now he's saying in verses 19 through 21, what part of Moses and Isaiah didn't you understand? And I want you to feel the thrust of the Apostle Paul. What he's saying is that Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32 that God would make them jealous by non-Israelites. In other words, there would be non-Israelites that would see what God was doing among gentile people and god would be seeking to move the israelites to respond to the good things that god was doing among gentiles for example one of the stories in the old testament what nationality was naaman how many of you kids have ever heard of naaman the leper and he was a syrian that's a hard one he was from syria from up around damascus And it says that none of the lepers in Israel were healed. But Naaman came down and he dunked himself seven times in the Jordan. A story we've heard the time we were a kid. And the Gentile had this good thing. Why did that happen? To move the Israelites who in the time of the prophet Elisha were turning away from the Lord. Naaman receives, the Gentile receives the blessing of God. That's the idea of this verse. God will move to jealousy an unbeliever that's not responding. A Jew that should be listening to God's revelation, God will move to jealousy. And what pricked my heart about this? You say, Dave, how do I reach out to my unbelieving friends? This is something really important. You need to be with unbelievers. I want to challenge you. Those of you that have little children, one of the greatest testimonies that you can have is for you on your block to be with unbelieving friends, like at Halloween when it comes. That's a great time for you to be out there and handing candy out and have a track with it and make a safe place for your neighborhood kids to be there. And what unbelievers should see is here's a couple that love each other and they love their kids, and that should be a great attraction As you're involved in the school system, and as you do a lot of unselfish things, they should say, you know, man, what's going on in that person's life? They're jealous in a good way. They want what you have. And one of the questions that I ask myself, and I ask myself this a lot, if an unbeliever gets really close to me, what would make me jealous in my life because I have Jesus in my life that would make them want what I have? a very important question. The Apostle Paul is saying that in Romans, the Gentile believers had found the Messiah, the Messiah coming into their life. As we get into the, the latter part of Romans, we're going to learn about all the way that Jesus helps us to live together in love and to be able to do kind things for one another and all the powerful newness that Jesus brings into our life. And one of the things that Satan is doing is he's robbing God's people of the fruit of the Spirit. And he gets them bogged down in sinfulness. Why does he do that? Because that's his warfare. If he can make an unbelie- if he can make a believer get all embroiled with sin and not walk in the power of the resurrection, then what happens is that the unbeliever can look at the believer and say, They don't have anything that I want. And one of God's purposes is for those that receive his Messiah. And where Gentiles have received the Messiah, one of God's purposes, he wants to move us to be engaged with the unbelieving world so the unbelieving world says, I don't know what those Christians have, but I want it. And that's one of the prayers I want you to have for our whole church family. I want to pray that we're going to spread out over this area and that as the Holy Spirit transforms us, that more and more there will be people that says, I want to be part of you because I'm jealous, I covet the love that you have as a husband for your wife. I covet the love that you as a mom and dad have for your kids. That's why divorce is such a problem in the body of Christ. It's a powerful spiritual warfare. When believers get divorced, it destroys that kind of an outreach. Now, there are times when there's abuse and when kids are in danger and when there's rank immorality. And the Bible talks about that hardness of heart. And we needed a church family really support and love because God Himself in the Old Testament presented as being divorced. And the Bible wrestled with those real life situations. But we live in a culture where a ton of believers and unbelievers just say, I've had it. And I think there's greener pastors and I don't like the way life is turning out. I'm out of here. And unbelievers, like one of the things I hear, like when I go back to the East Coast, And I tell them, I'm from Dallas, I'm from Midlothian. I have to say I'm from Dallas, they never know where Midlothian is. My unbelieving friends, I can't believe it, you live right in the belt buckle of the Bible belt, and we have a better divorce rate in Connecticut than you have in Texas. Ha ha ha, Jesus doesn't mean anything. That's the opposite of what Paul is driving at. So one of the things as believers, I want every one of you to realize, your life is not about you. And it's not about me. Every one of you as you go out here, you are the key to moving people to jealousy. This week, if you live close to Christ and you walk with Him and you let His resurrection power change you, then what happens is that unbelievers connect with you and they'll be moved to want what you have. If as a believer you're not walking with Christ and your heart becomes hard, and you begin to live and act like an unbeliever, then you become someone who repulses people to Jesus. Like one of the most extreme exhibits of that is in history. Paul's trying to reach Jewish people in this text. He says God tried to move the Jews, his physical children, to receive Jesus as the Messiah through Gentiles. So in Germany... Germans, according to Jewish people, they viewed Germans as Roman Catholic and Lutheran, culturally. Because Jews think about religion in terms of your ethnicity and your organization. Germany was the country. Hitler claimed to be a Roman Catholic. He wasn't a good Roman Catholic. But in Jewish eyes, he claimed to be a Roman Catholic. And he used Martin Luther, the founder of the modern language of Germany... And he used the founder of Lutheranism to kill the Jews. Every Jew you talk to knows that. So one of the things that you need to do is you need to say, put your hands up right away and say, I weep with you. Christendom, as an organization, was from hell when it put six and a half million Jews in the oven. And we're partly responsible... Because there were inquisitions that burned Jews at the stake and threw them out of Spain. That's true. And every Jew you talk to knows that history really well. In fact, when you mention Jesus to a modern Jew, they think Auschwitz. They think organized Christendom that never helped us. And so you have to work really hard to say, I join you in that. So I have a lot of understanding about that. And there's a powerful, ugly illustration of when Christians become just Christendom and it becomes just a culture. And I don't care whether it's a Bible church structure or whether it's a Roman Catholic structure or whether it's a Southern Baptist structure. When we become about our organization Instead of about the transforming power of Jesus, we start to make decisions that move away from the transforming power of Jesus and we become ugly in the world. And then the world rejects our Jesus. And one of my biggest prayers, and I want you to pray for Mary and myself, we need to finish strong, pure, living close to Jesus so that people may move to jealousy. I talked to... Uh, A lady, just as we started visiting today, Josh, she rode Josh in a carpool when he was in school, and we connect instantly because I've lived all of my life, my adult life in Midlothian. The Lord has used the fact that Mary and I stayed together, the fact that our kids were not into the principal's office every single time you turned around. They weren't totally guiltless kids. They did a lot of bad things. But they did live with integrity, and they had a testimony here. That's what the Apostle Paul in a very positive way. Was our family perfect? Not by a million miles. And I've tried to be totally honest with you as a pastor. I've been very real. I live in the same world you live here. But I want you to know that your family and your marriage has tremendous impact. And it should move to jealousy your unbelieving friends. Which means you're connected with unbelievers. It means that you're living close to the Lord as a believer. Paul is making this incredible claim that God was reaching out his hands towards the jewish people now how did they respond like somebody get discouraged you reach out to your family you open your arms and i want to tell you about jesus and they turn you off don't get discouraged because look at how they responded it says god says all day long in verse 21 all day long i held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people how many of you have ever reached your hand you feel god was using you to reach your hands out and the people were obstinate and rebellious as a parent, there is a time when Noah doesn't respond to my hands reaching out. When is that? Like you all said, I reach out my hand and have Noah respond. You all want to like this. There is a time when I go, Noah, Papa, and he doesn't reach up to me. When is that? Everybody tell me. When he's naughty. Everybody say it. When naughty. That's why people don't respond to God's hands. That's why you don't respond to God's hands. And that's what Paul is saying. saying All day long, God reached out his hands. It's not God's fault. People are obstinate and they're stubborn. And that's what he's claiming. And he quotes it. From uh, Isaiah chapter 65, the marvelous book of Isaiah, right after those marvelous passages about all we like sheep have gone astray and God laying on his hands, he's saying all day long I held out my hands, but the people were disobedient and they were obstinate. When your teenager tells you, I don't want to go to Melothian Bible Church anymore. And you say, man, church must be boring. I guess Tim and Becky have lost their touch. Have you ever thought to ask your kid what's going on in your heart? Have you ever listened to the music that they like? Have you ever looked at their friends they're running with? Because that will tell you where their heart is. And I want to tell you something right up front and personal. I have obstinance and stubbornness in my heart. Anybody like that? Your kids are like that too. And I see a ton of American parents Their kid will say, Well, I'm not interested in spiritual things anymore. And I don't love Jesus anymore. And so you say, Well, I'm just gonna let you experiment. That's really good. And so we'll just kind of we want your faith to be your own faith. And so you just drop out completely. That's nuts. We need some parents that join God, they keep reaching out to an obstinate. You say, What do I do with an obstinate rebellious teenager? You hedge them in, you make them face the consequences, the decisions they're making. You don't bail them out. You let them, if they screw it up and the consequences fall, you let God, that's what God models for you. And then you're there with open arms, just like the prodigal son's father. And a whole bunch of you as moms and dads don't teach your kids from the time they're really really small, when they're obstinate and they're rebellious, you cuddle them and you cover for them. And then you can't figure out why they're still living with you when they're 35. Well, I'd live with you too, man. I'd like not to have to get up this morning at six o'clock to study this passage again. I'd, I'd love to have somebody else do it, and then just keep taking my pay. All of you would like that. God is saying, "I'm the ultimate daddy. I reach out all the line, and then and we close. It's very powerful. Paul goes on in Romans." How many of you ever get discouraged and say, I guess everyone's going to be rebellious. I guess everyone's going to be often. Anybody ever feel that way? That's the Elijah syndrome. In Elijah's day, Elijah, Jezebel, this wicked, immoral queen, had killed Naboth. She was a murderess. Ahab's a totally passive, namby-pamby man. I mean, Israel, they're, they're all worshiping Baal. So after Elijah burns them all up, remember that? You know, God, he, he didn't burn them. God did. Remember they called fire down from heaven? Elijah runs all the way down to Mount Sinai. He gets down on the mountains. It's like going to, to Colorado and says, Lord, I need a break. And he holds up his hand and says, God, I'm the only one left. How many of you have ever felt like I'm the only one left? Anyone that's ever felt that, raise your hand. This is a marvelous passage. The Apostle Paul says, Lord, he talked about what Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophet in verse 3. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to Elijah? He says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, and this is Paul, this is what Paul would say about today, and this is what Paul says about our town. This is what he says about our country. This is what he says about our world. So to today, there's a remnant that's chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were by grace, it would no longer be of grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, they did, they did not obtain. Bec- but the elected, God's chosen ones did. The other ones were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit. Those who were hardened, they had a spirit of stupor. They couldn't see. They're blind. They couldn't hear. And David said, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and retribution. Those are Old Testament passages that speak about God's judgment and God's attack against those that, retur- that refuse his laws. And the tragedy is that in Paul's day, Israel had become the hard-hearted people. I've been picking pecans. How many of you have been picking pecans? It's a great year for pecan. Okay, Pecans, when you crack them, when you work on cracking them, Now, this is what they're supposed to be like. They're soft and they're meaty inside. Everybody agree? And they taste really good. The shell is just right, and it's soft enough, so it's easy to crack it, and then they're soft and fleshly inside. I could go through that bag, and and if I kept on going, I eventually get one that is a little bit harder in the shell, but when I crack it, it's filled with, Dark stuff that tastes terrible. How many of you have ever had a pecan that tasted like that? Okay. The Apostle Paul is saying that you need to be easy to crack as God reaches hands towards you. And you need to be soft and meaty inside and sweet. That's what the Lord wants you to be. He's saying that the, his own physical people had allowed the worm and the disease that gets in pecans of we can do it ourselves. God accepts those who obey the rules and follow the religious customs. And Paul is saying that those people become hardened. That worm of self-sufficiency, that worm of thinking you can earn your way, you can make God obligated to you, will slowly but surely make you bitter, and make you cold, and make you indifferent. The big question we have to ask ourselves today is, what kind of a nut are we? When I went to high school, when I went to high school, Dr. Debose had gone home to be with Jesus. And a few years before I went there, he was a great man of God. And one of his famous statements was, when you come to my funeral... Don't weep too hard because the nut is really not there. He's gone. It's just the shell. The real meaty, sweet, tasty part that God had created was taken by the Lord. And one day the Lord's even going to put a nice new shell. Amen? So as you leave here today, I ask you to ask yourself, what about the condition of your heart? Write down what are some of the qualities in my life that if I'm a friend with an unbeliever, what are some of the things that Jesus is producing in my life by his grace that would make an unbeliever jealous and want what I have?